When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Come and join me, we'll teach the world to fly, will you come and join me, I'll fly you to the sky. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've watched this podcast before or listened to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you know that I love to have interviews and discussions, not even interviews, discussions with guests who bring great value to me and my organization, and I know they're going to bring great value to you and your organization. Today's guest is a very unique person who's lived a very unique life, culminating in an excellent book. The book is actually called Razor 3, written by my guest, Alan C. Mack. Alan, before I read your resume, I just want to welcome you to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to uh, briefly read Alan's bio. Alan Mack, U.S. Army Chief Warrant Officer 5, retired... A native of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, served over 35 years in the U.S. Army before retiring in 2016. His military career included 17 years in Army Special Operations. His awards include the Legion of Merit, wow, two distinguished flying crosses, wow, three bronze stars, 10 air medals, one with valor device, and a combat action badge. Additionally, he logged more than 6,700 flying hours during his tenure. During operations Desert Shield and Storm, Mack participated as a CH-47 Delta Chinook pilot. He then flew MH-47s while assigned to the 160th SOAR, S-O-A-R, the Army's only Special Operations Aviation Regiment. His crew was one of the first into Afghanistan and the first into Mazar-Sharif, as part of America's response to the attacks on 9-11-2001. His cargo, a 5th Special Forces Alpha Team, ODA-595, a.k.a. the Horse Soldiers, helped topple the Taliban, capture the country's capital, and reclaim possession of the U.S. Embassy. As a Special Operations Flight Leader participating in Special Operations Worldwide in support of the Global War on Terror, Mac collaborated with Army Rangers, Delta Force, Special Forces, Navy SEALs, assorted Special Operations units, uh, probably Navy EOD at some point in there, um, and other government agencies. Before retirement, Mac served as commander of the West Point Military Academy Aviation Department. Mac's first book, Razor 03, A Night Stalker's Wars, was published by Pen and Sword Books in the fall of 2002. He is the Deputy Commissioner for Orange County, New York, 
Department of Emergency Services. He resides in the town of Wallkill with his wife, Patty. I met his wife, wonderful woman. And there's a story behind that as well that we'll get into during this the discussion. Al, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Sorry, it, it took a long time to get through the setup here and the warm-up, but uh, you have a very compelling life story. And um, while it's hard to discuss everything, I think you've captured so much in your book. But before we get to that, let's talk about your upbringing a bit. So Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I was there in my Navy diving days. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we did uh, did some, some work up there. But um, what was it like growing up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire? Oh, well, it was great. I mean, you know, 1970s. So uh, no cell phones, no computers. We're outside all the time. And uh, wherever a bicycle could take you, we went, you know. And yeah. uh, I lived about five miles from the coast. And uh, we could get to the beach in about 15 minutes on a 10-speed. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool. So very similar. You know, I grew up during, during the 70s as well. And you're right. No internet, no phones, bicycle, baseball, skateboards. Yeah. I mean, we were just, and in the wintertime, you know, outdoor hockey, sledding. We, we just outside all the time. Did you play sports in school, high school? I did. I was. Uh, I ran track and cross country. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So high school jobs? Uh, high school job, uh, dishwasher, which I still at my house now, I always joke that I'm the only trained dishwasher in the house. <laughs> That's funny. Only trained dishwasher. So I've, uh, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I've got that qualification as well. So that's kind of funny. Okay. So then, uh, how did you discover the army, uh, after high school? Well, actually I discovered it as a, oh, seven or eight year old, you know, huh? Cub Scout kind of kid. And it was, you got to remember that I grew up during the Vietnam War, and the news would be on it, you know, 5 or 6 p.m., you know, and you always had Hueys flying across the screen. I remember and that. I was like, I want to do that, right? And um, I remember TV Guide. Remember the little magazine told you what was on TV? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there was, I used to do the crossword in that thing. Well, there was Army, uh, you know, an Army advertisement in there, and I filled it out, and I sent it in, and the guy wrote me back, the recruiter, and he said, hey, look, I see by your date of birth, you know, you're like seven years old, so uh, here's some stickers. <laughs> And, uh, you know, call me in 10 years, you know, kind of thing. And uh, I was in uh, senior in high school, and a friend of mine had been to the recruiter, and I was going to go to college. I had a roommate picked out. We were going to go do our thing, but I knew I was just going to party, you know, it was yeah. going to be a waste of time. So uh, the, guy said, the other guy said, hey, come on down to the recruiter with me. Maybe you can fly helicopters. And I was like, oh, yeah. Right, because they could at the time they had the what they called high school to flight school. Oh, you wow! Off the street. What year was that roughly? That was uh, nineteen eighty. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're four years ahead of me. Yeah. So uh, I went down and I said, uh, you know, to the recruiter, I'd like to fly helicopters, and he's like, whoa, you know, hold on, slow down now. Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to get in from the street. You know, it's easier to get in from the inside. So mm-hmm. why don't you join the army as a aircraft mechanic? And uh, then you get to learn the lingo and the culture, you know, the whole deal, right? And then it's easier to get into flight school. Now, that's a bit of a recruiter spiel, but it was true. Okay. Yeah. So I did. I joined uh, delayed entry. Okay. Uh, and I went through the summer and went to basic training in September of 81. Okay. Wow. So uh, so you enlisted mm-hmm. and probably like me, you came in as an E1, you know, or what we yeah. call an E-nobody. Yeah. And uh, and worked your way up. And then the Army has a program. Are all Army aviators former enlisted? No. I, I, helicopter pilots, I mean. Nope. Not, not, okay. Nope. I mean, because you can come in from the outside. You could 
you know, go to college and then get in. Okay. Uh, you could be a commission officer. Okay. Which is kind of a misnomer nowadays because warrant officers are commissioned as well. Yeah, right. Uh, back in the day, they weren't. You got a warrant from the Secretary of the Army as opposed to a commission from the President. Yeah. So they're still called warrant officers, but you get a commission. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know what? So uh, I, I was a limited duty officer in the Navy, so I similar sim similar enlisted to officer right. program, and I've never heard that yeah. warrant. Yeah. So uh, I did nine years as a aircraft mechanic, and uh, I, I served in- Korea, Texas, and West Germany. Cool. So uh, at what point then did you apply to become a warrant officer and an aviator? Yeah. So roughly nine years in, I decided that uh, I was married to my wife, Linda, at the time, and my two sons were in Germany. This is before the wall came down. That's why I referenced West Germany. Yeah. Uh, okay. Versus uh -huh. Germany. And I decided that I would either ETS or get out of the army or go to flight school. So I put in for flight school and uh, the thought process is if I didn't get accepted, I'd just get out. And uh, I got accepted. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. So where was flight school? Flight school is Fort Rucker, Alabama, although now it's Fort Novacell, I think, as they, of like a week ago. They changed the name. Yeah. Really? Yeah, they changed almost all of the... Uh, because of that Civil War stuff was yeah. Rucker uh, uh, Legacy Civil War. Yeah. That's unfortunate. I've been to Rucker myself. I actually did a uh, triathlon up there. Oh, nice. um, and I know a few other uh, Army helicopter pilots who have gone through the program as well. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So you're in the Army how long at this point when you become a pilot? Mm, I guess 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So 10 years in, you're a pilot, you're a Chief Warrant Officer 1. Uh, W1. W so you have... W01, and then you become a chief warrant officer. Oh, okay. All right. Navy, we call them CWOs yeah. right out of the yeah. gate. So, uh, so you're a, you're a W1. Uh, what was your first assignment, operationally speaking? Yeah. So, well, interestingly, I, I flew Hueys, UH1s, in flight school. And uh, at the end of that, the Chinook community back in those days was very senior, very top heavy. Okay. And, and that's a picture of the Chinook on the screen there, by the way. Great big heavy machine. Yeah. The big Greyhound or the, the SEALs always call it the, uh, the black school bus of death. Yeah. Because you know, they come <laughs> swooping in with those guys. Yeah. But, uh, or the double headed dumpster. You know, <laughs> I like thing. that. Yeah. But um, so all these guys were retiring, kind of like what's happening to the airlines right now. You know, all the you know guys are aging out and they're, uh, they don't have replacements. So uh -huh. what the Army had to do was replace these. CW4s, they didn't have fives back then. Okay. And um, the only thing they could do is take W1s out of flight school, you know, and what they did, the only metric they had was grade point average, right? So I happened to be the uh, number one guy in the class and the cool. number two guy also got it. So they gave us a Chinook transition, which was an, another month after we graduated. And uh, then I went to Savannah, Georgia, was my first assignment, Hunter Army Airfield. And uh, I got there after leave, and Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, which uh, fast-tracked me <laughs> in my training. Uh, you know, I was still obviously a junior, yeah. you know, co-pilot. But uh, what was interesting is I was willing to fly in conditions that the older guys were like, ah, let the Woj, you know, warrant officer junior, uh -huh. do that. And uh, so when we got to Desert Shield... That's a defensive operation that was supposed to keep Saddam from invading the Saudi Arabian kingdom. So that's Desert Shield, and then it became Desert Storm. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of flying there in the sand, the dust. I mean, it was, it was, it was rough. And uh, they're like, I'll let the Woj go. So I got a lot of flight time over there because the old guys didn't want to fly. Wow. You know? Wow. Okay. Um, 
So how long were you deployed uh, for that particular operation? It was about seven, maybe eight months. Okay. So not, not terrible. No. Uh, by, not, not by the most recent standards anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine you gained a lot of experience and became much more proficient at your craft. Where did you go after that deployment? Well, uh, we came back from Desert Storm at that point, and I stayed at Savannah for another two years and then went to Korea. So I was in South Korea. It's my second time there. First time as a pilot. Okay. And that's where I kind of kind of crafted the skills that were going to help me later on. So I became a unit trainer, which is like a level lower than an instructor pilot. Okay. And so the instructor pilots would train guys, certify them, and then they'd give them to me for follow-on training. Okay. And uh, I learned to do the no-fly line, which is the border between South and North Korea. You got to fly it back and forth from memory. Wow. Uh, so I would teach guys that. And the idea is that if you're in the area and you recognize certain landmarks, you know, don't keep going north. Yeah, right, kind of right. Thing. And actually, the the year I left, there was a OH-58 straight across the border and got shot down. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So one of our helicopters yeah. straight across the yeah. uh, the North Korea, the yeah. DMZ. And the yeah, North one of the pilots was killed and the other one was held, you know, for some period of time. Yeah. You know, paraded around the news. Yeah, right. And then wow. gave him back. Wow. You know, I've been to the DMZ as a tourist. I've been to Korea on military operations, but I've been to the DMZ just as a tourist. And it's it's a very unique place to visit. If um, if our listeners have not visited the DMZ and you find yourself in Korea, it's, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's. Yeah. Well, especially at Panmunjom because the conference table is, the border is a microphone cable. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's yeah. North Korea, South Korea. Yeah. You can actually walk around and let you do that. Yeah. And if you do that outside, it's just a painted line. They'll jump you and beat the crap out of you. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what uh, What after Korea? So after Korea, I was lucky enough to go to Fort Rucker, Alabama again, okay. but as an instructor. Oh, cool. So I taught people how to fly Chinooks. Okay. At what, what we called a cargo branch. Okay. Where were you um, on uh, 9-11-2001? So I was in the 160th by then. Ah, okay. And I was at... Uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Okay. Uh, at the GRTC, at the Joint Readiness Training Center. Okay. So that's the premier uh, free play area, if you will, ah. where you get to go and use your, your weapons and all your tools, your lasers, all the kind of stuff you can't typically use at a normal installation. I was down there actually doing maritime ops with uh, Fifth Group. Okay. You know, one of the Marops teams. Uh-huh. And I would fly them in with their Zodiacs in the back of the Chinook. Each Chinook would have uh, two Zodiacs in the back. Okay. And we'd come down to about, you know, 10 feet off the water, closer to five. Yeah. And boats would go out and the swimmers go out. 10 by 10s. Yep. Yeah. And then they would link up with, uh, there was a special boat unit out of uh, Alabama, SEAL. Unit. Okay. And they would, you know, hook up and they'd take them, you know, wherever they were going to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you mentioned it in the book as well, but just for the listeners, a 10 by 10 is, uh, uh, it's the helicopter is 10 feet above the water, flying at a forward airspeed of 10 knots, mm -hmm. and then equipment and personnel exit the aircraft. And like you said, it's it's usually not 10 feet, and yeah. uh, I it always felt to me like it was 100 knots. <laughs> so, I'll tell you, you know, I was out in San Diego one time, uh, in North Island, working with the odd number teams out there, and like, hey, we want to try 10 and 10, 20, 20, 30, 30, and 40, 40. And I'm like, 40, 40? That'll kill you. Yeah, for sure. And they're like, no, 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 the 46s do it all the time. I'm like, no, they've been telling you they have. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. You would die. Wow. Yeah. So. Wow. So uh, after um, September 11th, 2001, 
Did your unit deploy fairly quickly? It did. Uh, so 9-11 happens. That day, the battalion commander and I rent a car because even we couldn't, weren't allowed to fly. So we drove back to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It's about an eight, nine-hour drive. And we just kept trying to get any kind of information we could. You know, So we, we were just bouncing around with uh, generally NPR. You know, that seemed to have the best uh, reception. Because uh-huh. okay. you can just keep going and nothing yeah. came out of it. So we couldn't wait to get back to Campbell so we could get on the high side, you know, and uh, find out what was going on. And by that, I mean the, uh, you know, the-, the secret, Classified information. The classified yeah. information. Yeah. So we got there, we found out uh, we were headed to Tampa the next morning. So we took a 15 packs van with a bunch of planners and we drove to Tampa, Florida to Sock Cent, right? Special Operations Command CENTCOM. Okay. And uh, we planned the initial stages of Operation Enduring Freedom, which at the time was called Infinite Justice. Yeah. And they told us, well, so we planned this thing and um, they read us the riot act. Do not say anything about infinite justice. Okay. Right. So we're driving back to Fort Campbell and there's a press conference at the Pentagon. Like Operation Infinite Justice is in its planning stages. I'm like, well, so much for that. They yeah. changed it the next day to Enduring Freedom. And, and then, uh, so we get back, we do some initial planning and, uh, we were in Uzbekistan just to the north of Afghanistan in early October. So just uh, about two and a half, three weeks after 9-11, we were there. Wow. Wow. And and this is, so Uzbekistan, and this is uh, preparation to cross the border into Afghanistan with the horse soldiers. Is that right? Well, yes and no. We didn't know that. Okay. We were there for the bombing campaign. So the idea was you had to bomb the Taliban in order to get troops in so you could get to Bin Laden, right? Because the Taliban is protecting him in the Tora Bora region. Okay. And um, we initially were there for what we call PR, uh, personnel recovery. So if somebody gets shot down or just ejects or crashes, we're going to go rescue them with okay. a couple of Air Force PJs. In so, the Chinook? In the Chinook. Okay. Yeah. And you got to get across these mountains that are about 20,000 feet or so. So you got to wear supplemental oxygen. There's air refueling um, at altitudes we never considered even reasonable for sure or even possible yeah and uh so we're there they, they start the bombing as soon as we build up the first two of four chinooks and uh we're sitting around waiting and you know when you're waiting for someone to screw up you know to have a bad day so you can go do your thing that it kind of sucks yeah for sure but uh so then in comes fifth group and uh the the group commander yeah carl moholland at the time okay he uh he wants a briefing from me and the other flight lead so we go in, we show them, you know, where we think we can go, where we couldn't go, what the, you know, challenges are. And he's like, wow, I wish somebody had told us that in planning. Huh. So it turns out they were at Soxent the same day I was in a room right next to me. Wow. But because of what they call isolation, sure, they didn't want to involve anybody else. So they didn't even bring us in until they got there. And uh, then we started the planning uh, with them for the infills of what they call a UW campaign. Uh, unconventional warfare. Right? Mm-hmm. That's where the the 12-man team links up with a warlord and they kind of use them as a proxy force mm-hmm. to hopefully do what we want them to do. Okay. And was that the horse soldiers or yeah, had that, that was. Play? Okay. So that was ODA 595, okay. Operational Detachment Alpha. Uh-huh. And we were actually the second team in by 30 minutes because the first team, uh, Triple Nickel, ODA 555, had to go to a guy named Fahim, who was Masood's deputy. So Masood was the leader of the Northern Alliance. Uh-huh. Al-Qaeda 
killed him the day before 9-11. Uh-huh. So we wouldn't have somebody to link up with. Wow. So they thought by killing him, because he was, everybody loved him. Yeah. Uh, and they thought by killing him, we would have nobody to work with, because his second in command was a real douche. And uh, he insisted that he get his Americans first. Okay. So there was actually two goes at it. They turned around for weather. And then Secretary Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, calls the planning area, and he's like, you get those teams in tonight, period. Yeah. Well, the problem with that is the other team, Triple Nickel, took my other helicopter. Right? We worked in teams of two. So they needed it for lift. So that left me by myself, and we never did single ship operations. Uh-huh. So they gave me a couple of armed Blackhawks uh, that couldn't do the mission. You know, they went, you know, for the first 30 minutes or so and had yeah. to turn around. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you get the guys in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Um, you return to your staging area. What happened after you get the guys in? Yeah, so we, so we get them in. We fly back, and it's terrible weather. You know, uh, we're using the terrain following radar, which is something that had never been done for real. You know, we practiced with it. Sure, used the simulator, but they wouldn't let you do it because the damn thing would reboot on its own, right? So you're like flying along. It's it's commanding you through the mountains. All of a sudden, the computer just psh, wow. And so you'd have to, you know, pull the circuit breakers and re- reinitialize it. Wow. And you get, you know, in the meantime, you got to climb like your life depends on it. Yeah. Because it does. Wow. And uh, what happened was we get back and we did it again and again and again. You know, so in the movie 12 Strong, which depicts that mission, uh, they make it sound like, you know, 595 was the only guys in Afghanistan for the whole first uh-huh. part of the war, but there was about 20 teams. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So not only did we put them in, but now you have to resupply them. Yeah. Right. They need ammo. They need batteries. You know, it's the yeah. most important thing. You know, that's, you, you even wrote about that in the book. You know, anybody who participates in, in enabling the operation from, from your, your mess hall, your cooks, your supply people, your wrench turners, your mechanics, your pilots, you know, everybody participates mm-hmm. in that mission. And, 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 you know, those of us operators on the front line, we know that we get that. Um, and, but, but movies don't show all that. No, not at all. Know? So there's a lot more going on when you see that SEAL team or those special operators, you know, kick down a door and kill the bad guy. Oh yeah. And you know, in the 160th, you know, it's an all volunteer unit and an all volunteer military, obviously, but everybody wants to be there. So the, yeah. the fuelers are the best in the army, you know, yeah. the, the medics, you know, they're the premier, the 160th medics are probably the premier, uh, flight medics in SOCOM. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And all those guys make the mission happen, you know, yeah. whether, you know, we didn't eat, you know, real food for the first couple of weeks and boy, once we did that, it really helped, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yeah, I love the cooks. I love the people that make the showers work. That's right. You know? That's exactly but, right. All that, all that stuff is critical. Yeah. Mission critical. I would call it mission mm-hmm. critical for sure. Yeah. So- um, so you, you, you did that operation and then how long were you in, um, Afghanistan? Like, so the rest of your career, I think. Well, for 10 years of, of combat deployments, but the deployments, you know, there's only at the time, I think we had 22 Chinooks, MH-47s, right? Which is a problem because as you bring more special operations forces into theater, you don't have enough rotoring which is why extortion one seven happened. That was the, the seal team that uh, mm-hmm. got killed in the norm, the conventional Chinook because there was no, uh, you know, MH 47s available. Okay. But so that first deployment was, I want to say seven months. Okay. And then I was home for two months. Then I was back for a month. Then I was home 
for two months and then I was gone for four months and it just, it, that's what it was like. Yeah. So it depended on the op tempo. Yeah. How many aircraft we had deployed. Cause that would change, you know, depending on what the target sets. Sure. Cause we went, there were times where nothing was happening in Afghanistan. You know, we were just doing uh, supply runs. I mean, it's like, oh, the special ops guys are doing supply runs. Well, yeah, the fobs need, you know, the guys need their batteries, their bullets, their, you know, their yeah. mail. Yeah. So you got to do that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, I was in, uh, when I was in Iraq, I was in Baghdad and, um, I was, I just needed to be transported from, I was like the, the lone EOD guy, you know? And so I would go from unit to unit based on where, where the, um, the, uh, just sort of joint special operation task force commander needed me at the time. And, um, they said, you know, go to this, uh, I think it was on Liberty in Baghdad, Camp Liberty. They said, go to this airfield and uh, a Chinook will come and pick you up. So, you know, all blackout conditions and all that stuff. And um, uh, I hear the Chinook, I put my nods on, I, then I see two of them. And I'm like, why are two helicopters coming to pick me up? But you, you kind of described it there. You know, you guys do two ship operations. So, and then uh, we flew low and dark over Baghdad. Um, and uh, uh, just a... Uh, professional team to watch the air crew you know you don't really see the pilots from the from uh the the cargo area of the oh the guys in the back are amazing yeah you know i talk about that in the front of the book you know where it's like those guys have got to be the bravest men i know because they're in the back with no control of where i take them yeah you know yeah i gotta trust that i'm gonna make some good choices they, yeah sometimes i don't you know yeah they case. gotta have faith and they're operating all their equipment. You know, they've got some complex equipment to operate back there as well, to include, you know, guns and uh, 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 infrared equipment and all that stuff. So really cool. So so ultimately, um, you uh, you completed your tours, and now it's time to retire. How did you, you know, how did your transition, you know, how did you wind up your career? Well, I would have stayed, so I'd... I did 35 years, 11 months, right? Okay. So, but who's quitter? Who's count, right? <laughs> uh, but, and I would have stayed at the regiment. You know, I love doing it, but I, my wife at the time was addicted to opioids, you know, prescription medicines. Mm -hmm. And uh, she ended up uh, overdosing and, and dying. So, you know, everywhere I looked was a, was a sad memory. You know, whether it was something that once was happy, now it's sad because it's gone and, or it was something to, to be angry about. So the regiment, you know, they took care of me. They were like, hey, do, what do you want? We'll make a position for you. You know, be the goodwill ambassador to the special ops community. Uh-huh. You know, I was like, nah, I want something different. And I was lucky enough to be asked to go up to New York City to Ground Zero and unveil a statue called America's Response, which is a green beret on a horse that's kind of up on his back legs. And that was representing the horse soldiers. And when I was up there, I found out that the uh, West Point Flight Detachment so they fly the general around and uh, the skydiving team and they do some firefighting, you know, that kind of stuff. But the commander's position was available and it's a nominative position. Someone's got to nominate you and then the general has to pick you kind of thing. And I was like, that's what I want to do, right? I'm from the Northeast anyway. So uh, I put my name in the hat. I came up to interview and the general liked me, picked me. And so I went there and uh, that was a three-year assignment and the army decided to move me. I'd have stayed, you know, to 40, a war officer can stay to 40 years. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I'll stay. And they're like, yeah. no, 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 that's too good a job. You got to go back to the community, meaning back to special operations. Okay. Well, I had met my current wife, Patty, and she's, you know, a New Yorker through and through. Yeah. And right down, the, right down to the accent. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, you know, my son's actually, um, uh, talked me out of it. Right. And talked me into retirement. 
uh, both of them, you know, my youngest son was in the 160th as well as a crew chief. Wow. And then the older one is still in the Navy flying uh, backseat in uh, F-18s. Yeah. But they, they called me like, Dad, uh, don't do it. Because I was going to actually be uh, the USASOC commander's senior warrant officer. So, you know, like the Sergeant so, Leader. So USASOC, U.S. Army Special Operations Command. Right, out of yeah. Fort Bragg. I'm not sure what it, its new name is, but yeah. something else. <laughs> I think it's Fort Liberty or something like yeah, that. Man. But anyway, they called and they said, Dad, you're going to take Patty out of New York to Fayetteville, North Carolina, right? I mean, big difference there culturally, right? Big difference. And, you know, Vietnam. And yeah. um, I'm like, no, it'll be okay. I'll, I'll live out, you know, toward, you know, Pine Hills or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're like, but Dad, you'll never be home. I'm like, no, 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 it's working with the general. And he's like, and what do you think he does all yeah, the time? Yeah. He's going to go visit the troops. So I decided to retire, and I retired out of out of that unit in New York, 2nd Aviation. Okay. And I was lucky enough. It's kind of a long story how I met the county executive, but he liked me. He's a naval reservist. Okay. And uh, he's like, hey, I got a job that you'd be perfect for. So I ended up in emergency services as a deputy commissioner of emergency services, division of emergency management. And that's the long title. Yeah, right. So I deal with storms and pandemics and Okay. Kind of other stuff. So any so first of all, very perceptive on your kids. You know, I've been to Bragg. I went to when I went to Free Fall School back yeah. then. The first phase was at Fort Bragg and Fayetteville. You know, Fayetteville and 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 um, to I, I just think your sons were very perceptive. Oh, they were. Yeah, yeah. I met the guy that got the job. Right, there were only two of us in the running. Uh huh. When I withdrew, you know, he obviously got it, and uh, I met him at West Point at an event, and I was like, hey, so. Uh, how does, how's the job? And he's like, oh, I love it. I go, awesome. You know, is there any downside? And he goes, well, my wife hates it. I go, why? <laughs> he goes, I'm always gone. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, oh, my kids. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, and things turned out very well for you. So um, you're, you're in emergency management now. Was there any desire to fly uh, upon retirement from the active duty? There was. I mean, I had uh, a couple of jobs lined up, one with the state police, one uh, with the GE but they moved to Boston. And once again, I didn't want to move away from the area. So that one came, fell out. And then it was corporate up in uh, upstate a little bit. So I had some jobs flying lined up, uh-huh. uh, air ambulance, uh, yeah. air methods. You know, the guy that I replaced as the commander was was leaving there to go to back to Fort Lewis. Okay. And he's like, hey, you want my job? And I was like, yeah, let's see. And then this other one opened up. And the reason I took it was because, you know, flying involves health. Sure. Your cholesterol, your hearing, your eyesight, yeah. your heart. You yeah. Know? And it's like, you know, I'm not getting any younger, my back, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's the big thing is my back was, yeah. was killing me. Yeah, man, and, I hear you there. Yeah. And uh, so I took it and I've been doing it seven years now and it's been a blast because, okay. you know, the one thing that people ask me all the time is, you know, do you miss flying? And I say, no, not really. I mean, I miss the mission. Yeah. I miss going after bad guys. Sure. A bunch of pipe swingers. That's sure. a lot of fun. Yeah. But I miss the people. Yeah. Right. And I miss the type of people that would do that kind of thing. And emergency services is very similar. You know, police officers, the EMS, the firefighters. For sure. You know, so yeah. I get to work with all those guys. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's, um, it sounds like a, like a great transition and there's still this kind of action, action to what. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. 
all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What you're doing. Folks, we're going to take a break real quick. Um, we are going to... Let me, let me redo that again. Folks, we're going to take a break real quick. When we come back, we're going to talk to Al about his book, how he got into writing it. And um, I can tell you, it's an awesome read. To get to know service members on uh, very personally uh, is, is it's, it's always, it gives me goosebumps uh, sometimes, actually quite often. And, uh, and his book will do that. We're going to talk about his book when we come back. And uh, if you're wondering about my shirt, by the way, today's Aloha Friday here at I Fly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving in Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, where we overlook the oceanfront down here. But uh, today's Aloha Friday, so our crew here, we, uh, we put on our Hawaiian shirts on Fridays. All right, back in a minute. Okay, and we are back, folks. We are talking to Al, or Alan C. Mack, Al Mack, author of Razor 03, uh, an incredible book. It's a memoir of his military career. And what's really interesting and um, uh, emotional, I guess, would be the way to put it. Um, you know, the subtext on the book is A Night Stalker's Wars, um, but there's two components to that, really. There's his personal life and his professional life. So what motivated you? What prompted you to write the book? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, um, I guess just the idea to get some of those stories out, because you, you hear some, you know, the, the lone survivor, you know, the horse soldiers, and uh, nobody really writes about the 160th. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Mike Durant did it after Somalia. Uh, that's right. Right. He did uh, in the Company of Heroes, and then they did a follow-up, Night Stalkers, they called it. And that's about it. And uh, I thought, you know, the guys, you know, I'm not doing it anymore, but the guys are still out rowing the boat. Yeah. They they, they got to get some uh, some acknowledgement, you know, without giving away any of the trade secrets, if you will. Sure. But um, I what really got me was uh, I was being interviewed for another book, The Horse Soldiers, not The Horse Soldier Book or 12 Strong by Doug Stanton, but a book called uh, Swords of Lightning. Okay. Which is the actual team members version of what they did written by uh, Jim DeFelice who uh, did American Sniper. Yeah, okay. So he, he lives near me. So he came to my work and interviewed me. And after we were done with the interview, he said, you know, you tell a good story. Why don't you write a book? And I'm like, ah, you know, everybody will hate me if I read a book. You know, that seems to be the thing, right? And uh, <laughs> so then- I know what you're talking about right? there. Yeah. So yeah. then um, I was invited to the premiere of 12 Strong down in Manhattan. So- I come down there, I get to meet the actors and the team is there and uh, we, we watch the movie. We come to the after party. It's a, it really, it was a lot of fun. And uh, Jim DeFelice is standing there drinking bourbon with me, horse soldier bourbon. Of course. The thing I was telling you about. But uh, he's like, Al, what do you think? You got you to gotta write that book. And I'm like, I don't know how to write a book. Get out. And he's like, I'll help you. And I'm like, ah, all right. So the next day I started. Now his idea of help was mentorship. Yeah, you know, I was thinking co-author. Yeah, he'll do, right. he'll do all the work. Ghostwriter. Yeah, <laughs> no, he, but uh, he's he's been great. But that's really what prompted me was, uh, you know, the the want to do it, and then I decided that I kind of figured I'm kind of one of the only Night Stalkers that could write the book because of the way I left, and and I'll explain. When you leave a special operations unit, everybody hates you. 
right? I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, I did 17 years there. And if I had just left, like, you know what, guys, I'm, I'm going to give up. I'm going to retire. Everybody hates you. Mm-hmm. They're mad at you for leaving. And I don't, I never understood that, but it, it is the way it is. But my wife dies. They know I need a change of venue. And they're like, okay. And then the regiment takes care of me, gets me up there to New York. And uh, they've been great, you know? And uh, yeah. 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 That's cool. So um, it, throughout the book writing process, like when I wrote Elevate Your Leadership, I had what's called a book coach. So uh, I would write a chapter send it to her, she'd read the chapter and she'd come back with a bunch of questions and recommendations. And, and I found the process, if I didn't have that help, my book would be boring and uninteresting and nobody would buy it. Uh, I didn't have that. I wish I did. Yeah. But what I did have, you know, like I said, is Jim DeFelice and also, uh, an author, uh, Stephen Hartov. Okay. Who was the guy that ghosted, uh, Durant's books. And, uh, he also lives local. So I sent like the first two chapters or something, you know, okay. and his response was, and I put it in the acknowledgement. So he, he said, uh, the problem with you special operations types is you make getting shot at sound like you're buying bagels. Yeah. You know, right. He goes, you got to have emotion. Yeah. Right? And so I did. I, I unpacked a lot of emotion in this. Yeah. Did you find that to be kind of therapeutic in the process? I wouldn't call it therapeutic, but what it did do for me is it put some things in perspective, which maybe that is therapeutic. Sure. In that, you know, I, so I, here I am in New York and people would say, oh, what happened? How did you end up here? Oh, well, you know, my wife got addicted to prescription pain pills and she died, you know? And they're like, oh, well, how long did that last? I'm like, oh, it's about two years. Well, as I'm writing the book, I realized she had problems all the way back from when I first met her. Uh-huh. And I just had like, compartmentalized it sure and it helped put into perspective how she went downhill and in in the way that it worked yeah so it it was certainly helpful in that respect okay yeah um do you want to now we got a emergency vehicle going by in the background and usually we get jets overhead here we're not far from uh naval air station oceana the master jet base where we call the sound of the f-18s the sound of freedom so we might hear that uh from time to time um Let's talk about your wife a little bit, your first wife, because you did write about this in the book and, you know, you just talked about how how you discovered that the problems actually, you know, started much earlier. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like for you deploying, fighting the bad guys, as, as you say, and then coming home and having a, a what I would imagine as a fight on the home front as well? Yeah. Well, it started actually back in the early 90s when I was in Korea because there was no email, there was no cell phone. Mm-hmm. You made a phone call back home. It was through the international operator. Mm-hmm. At like, you know, each call was like 100 bucks. Yeah. So the calls were very quick and like once a month, right? And so all you really had was letters, which took, you know, two weeks to three weeks to get there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I go there and what I didn't know was that my wife Linda had pulled away from the unit because I was going to go to Korea and come back to the same unit. Okay, and she didn't. She didn't. That was an unaccompanied tour. Then you went over there. Unaccompanied, right? Okay, uh-huh. yeah. So I'm alone. It's a year long. Yeah, and she's at home in Savannah, Georgia, with the two boys. They're little at the time, and she suffers from depression, which this is something I'd never seen, right? Mm-hmm. And she masked it very well, and but without me there, you know, it just picked up speed, spiraled, 
And uh, one night I get a phone call at like two in the morning my time, and it's her. She's, you know, she's taken an overdose of pills mm-hmm. and she's decided to kill herself. She says, I'm a failure, you know, and uh, I talk about this in the book, you know, I had a choice. You know, I could either stay on the phone and listen to her die, but she doesn't die alone, or I run the risk of hanging up, trying to get help to her, but she might die before they get there. And I chose that. You know, through the international operator, I was able to get the seven-digit number for the Savannah PD, and uh, the police got there, you know, kicked in the door and saved her. So the the unit sent me home. We got her some help, some therapy, and that was kind of that for a couple of years. And I thought that was, you know, one and done. And uh, I was at Fort Rucker, Alabama after that, right? Because you had the Korea assignment in Fort Rucker. Mm -hmm. And And that was... Instructor tour. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was great for the family because I didn't deploy at all. You know, I was, you know, I would say nine to five, but it was more like four in the morning to, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I worked nights. But um, she was fine. And I thought that would keep me out of the 160th, right? So when you do the assessment, you know, the tryout, it's a week long. And one of the things you do is you have to talk to the psychologist. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so tell me what happened, you know. And he said, uh, so during the board, the very final event in the, the week is you sit in front of a, a table full of, you know, senior officers, the regimental commander, mm-hmm. your instructor, all this stuff. And they, they grill you and they try to get you to crack. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to see what, you know, what your medal is. Yeah. And uh, the whole time I was expecting to hear, you know, about my wife. And they never mentioned it. Huh. So questions that they considered difficult, you know, because I did those boards, you know, later on. Right. And I know that these questions were meant to break me and they didn't because they didn't ask. The only thing I was worried about was wow. uh, the family situation. Yeah. And so it was good, right? Until uh, Operation Anaconda, which is March 3rd and 4th of uh, 2002, right? So that's my first deployment to Afghanistan right after the 9-11. Okay. And she's doing great. You know, she's involved with the unit. She's doing well. And I have the unfortunate situation of being shot down. Okay. Uh, that operation ended up with two medals of honor, uh, Brit Slabinski and John Chapman. Yeah. And uh, that's where one of my DFCs come from. Okay. And uh, I was rescued by Razor 04, brought back to... Uh, the Ford operating base at Gardez. Uh-huh. And so here's where it gets stinky is that, uh, the guys there, the agency guys are like, Hey, uh, Al, you might want to call your wife. Here's a sat phone. Uh, they're about, it's about to go on CNN that two Chinooks have been shot down. And, uh, you know, there's like eight fatalities known at mm-hmm. this point, right? That was Neil Roberts was one of those fatalities. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And he was on my helicopter, but razor zero one and razor zero four, uh, or, uh, one and two actually were after me, right? Wow. The numbering thing is yeah, confusing yeah. sometimes. But, you know, they were shot down up there. But, you know, it was the Rangers that were killed and one of our crew chiefs, uh, Phil Svitak. But here's where it's the problem. So it makes the news. Nobody back home knows who is dead as far as the wives. And they're all over at the commander's house, the officer's wives, and they're waiting for any kind of news. And as you know, there's a process to notify next of kin. So I did not call and tell her that I was alive. CBL? Were you guys under a comms blackout? Yeah. Yeah. Except I'm out in the middle of nowhere with a sat phone with a CIA, so I can call. Yeah. But uh, I know I can't. 
Right. And she found out about that after I got back and she was pissed and she never forgave me for that. Wow. And that's essentially where she, while we were in the 160th, started slowly dragging downhill because, uh, you know, she thought I was dead for, you know, a day or two. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's stressful, man. That's, yeah. that's heavy emotion and heavy stress. Yeah. Um, Okay. Is there is there anything more? I know you 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 do discuss this. Uh, I, I'd say in pretty good detail in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, ultimately, uh, she passed away. Uh, what, was it a suicide? It's ruled suicide on okay. her death certificate. She definitely overdosed. I'm not sure if it was or wasn't. But yeah. uh, you know, she essentially did it to herself. Yeah, you know, taking the pills and drinking. You know, were you were you deployed at the time? Were you no okay. no? But I had just moved out of the house. It's a long story about how I decided to finally move out. You know, okay. she had three DWIs. Yeah. And I said, if I ever catch you drinking and driving again, I'm out. Yeah. And that day I caught her, not that day, but yeah. a day I caught her and uh, moved out of the house. Okay. And uh, two weeks later, you know, she, uh, yeah. she overdosed. Yeah. You know, both of your sons are very successful. They're both in the military. Uh, one literally followed in dad's footsteps and the other one, uh, I would call the smarter one cause he joined the Navy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, how did they turn out to be so well adjusted given what must have been? I have no idea. A, a very traumatic upbringing. You know, I will say this. Uh, so Patty, my current wife asked me one time cause you know, she has three kids, my, my stepkids and, uh, we were. I hope they're not listening to this. They probably are to say that. Uh, <laughs> I hope they are. <laughs> we, well, we were discussing their flaws, you know, and uh, where they come from, you know, whether it's you know, the mother, the father, you know, the nature versus nurture stuff. Yeah. And Patty said, well, what about your boys? You know, what, uh, where do their flaws come from? I said, all the flaws come from me. Uh-huh. I said, all of the good traits come from Linda. Uh-huh. So she was a great mother. Uh-huh. You know, she was in an abusive childhood when she grew up. And she just wanted to be the mother that she wanted to have. Yeah, did, right. You know, so I think that really is what made them turn out so good is is her. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic. That, it, you know. it, it is, it is. But, you know, when uh, given our veteran status and even with the active duty folks, there's been so much in the last 10 or 15 years, so much research and, and therapy regarding, you know, uh, uh, what they call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. and and it really helps us understand who we are and who the people around us are. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I have found all that to be very useful and, and helping me go forward and, and helping me be, be useful or be helpful to other people. Wow. So what a, uh, what a, um, traumatic event for you at that time, even though you were separated or, or on your way out, that still had to be a very, uh, traumatic event for for you and your children um going forward a little bit you um uh, where were you in your career when when that happened how many how many years at that point or so that put me i had to be 32 33 okay years oh wow okay so late in your career yeah wow and she was with you for the entire career 26 yeah we were married 26 years wow and i'd say it was mostly happy yeah. And, uh, yeah, it just, yeah. Uh, it was, it was tough. Wow. So, so you talked about Anaconda, you know, and, um, in the book you, you've got, um, a really good story and a really good chapter. And, um, I don't want to just talk about Anaconda. I want to talk about the whole book, but there's, there's some relevancy there. The ring, 
uh, the recovery. All right. You want to just share that briefly? Yeah. So, um, I got asked on a podcast about a year ago, the guy said, um, did you bring anything with you overseas? You know, like in the movies, you know, a guy will pull a picture of his wife out, right. you know, and I'm like, right. no, I never carried anything. Yeah. And I said, the reason I didn't, well, the first deployment, we left everything behind sterile anyway, because we didn't know what we were getting into. But after that, so Anaconda happens and our crew chief is is killed on the, on the shoot down and not on my aircraft, but on Razor 01. And when it comes time to get rescued, the, um, they know they're going to get, you know, helicopters going to come and they don't know if they're going to be able to bring the bodies of the killed in action yet. So, cause they're not sure how many Chinooks are going to come up there and it's pretty high. It's about mm-hmm. 12,500 feet mm-hmm. or so. And so one of my friends, uh, Don Tabron, uh, is a CW5. He looks out and he sees Phil laying in the snow and he sees his wedding band and he's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to bring his body back, but his wife's going to want that. So he low crawls under heavy machine gun fire to get that ring. And then he, you know, low crawls back. And, uh, when they get rescued, obviously they were able to get everybody out of there, but that the the personal effects Mm -hmm. ended up in an ammo can that ended up getting sent back to the States. It didn't go back through the, you gotta remember, this is the very beginning of the war. Yeah. And so the process of getting bodies to, uh, to Dover yeah, you know, hasn't quite refined refined yet. Yeah, and right. Personal effects and all that stuff. So these things go back in an ammo can. They get put in a safe uh, at the one sixtieth, like in the in the the arms room, uh-huh. and uh, nobody knows they're there because the guy that delivered them goes on leave immediately. Uh huh. So he's gone for two weeks, and everybody's looking for the, this ring in particular. And uh, I decided that from there on out, I would never carry anything that you know if I were in that same situation where I was the body that somebody would have to risk their life to get my wife, my ring, you know? So we had this whole thing, you know, before I would leave on a C-17, you know, I'd hand my ring, you know, to Linda, you know, she'd cry, she'd put it on her, uh, on her necklace. Yeah. She'd wear it around. And when I came back, it was always a nice thing to get my ring back, uh, you know? Yeah. So I never carried anything like that because I didn't want that to happen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Was that, um, was that just you? Or was that a, a, a thing with with the squadron, or you know, the, as far as not bringing the yeah, I think almost, as far as leaving the ring with your spouse, I've never heard that before. I think a lot of us did that. And, really? Yeah, because it's one of those things where you you share that information. Like, oh, what what'd you do with your ring? Oh, yeah. I gave it to my wife each time. And yeah. Like, oh, you know what? I kind of like that. Yeah, I do too. You know, and I before I went to Iraq, I I certainly would have done that had uh, had I known about that. Yeah. So. And the other thing, you know, in aviation. When you pre-flight, so before you fly, you have to climb, out, climb all over the aircraft and open panels mm-hmm. and shake stuff, and you're not allowed to wear a ring, right? Okay. Because if you trip or slip, it'll rip your finger off. Sure. Right? So there's always like these safety posters with, look, don't wear the ring, you know? So you got to take the damn thing off anyway. Yeah. So, you know, why bring something valuable with you? Yeah. Wow. You know? Wow. So when did you publish the book? Uh, last September. Okay. So it's been out for nine months or so. Okay. Um, and what publisher did you use? Pen and Sword. They're out of the UK. They're a military, uh, history publisher. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is that how, so we have a mutual friend, Marty Strong. Yep. Marty has written, uh, two business books. He's, he's writing his third right now and he's written nine novels. He's re- retired Navy SEAL. He's a chief executive officer. He's a mentor of mine. Yeah. You know, oh, somebody. great. Yeah, yeah, somebody I who I, somebody I want to be like, yeah. right? Like, but how did you how did you and Marty come in contact with each other? 
it was a, you know, networking is important, right? It's one of those things that, uh, you know, as people transition out of the military, for example, or out of any, you know, field, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you kind of need a leg up, right? You need somebody that if they can't get you a job, maybe a little mutual support, maybe a little advice, you know? And, uh, so there's an organization called the Special Operators Transition Foundation, Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a nonprofit. They help special operations guys get out of the military and what they do is they, they, um, they have events where, you know, bankers and, you know, communications people, whatever it is, these guys are looking to do, they'll bring them in. So like, you know, for example, we're down in Manhattan and they'll bring in people from, you know, Merrill Lynch and, you know, stuff Uh like that. And they'll, they'll, you get to have dinner and drink with these guys Uh and they are the people that can hire you, you know, uh, and, and that's what they do. Right. So, um, I was in Florida doing one of those. So I was the draw. It was actually Rob O'Neill, uh, yeah, uh-huh. and I, and, uh, while we were there, there was a, a gentleman named, uh, Peter Gary, who's, uh, you know, well off and is a good friend of Marty's. Okay. And so, uh, Peter saw me and Rob up on stage. He really liked the, the messaging that I had and how I kind of tied things, you know, into, why the transition is difficult and how you can help, you know, uh-huh. these guys. And he invited me, uh, about six months later, he invited me down to a golf tournament, uh, at Adios, which is a very exclusive place. It was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Place. But, uh, in doing so, you know, just in conversations, I said, you know what I'd like to do other than, you know, I'm going to write another book. I signed another contract nice. uh, for that, but I'd like to do some public speaking. Right. I said, but you know, I don't know how to get started. And, and he goes, you got to meet Marty, right? Uh-huh. And so he hooked me up and Marty and I talked a couple of times. Cool. And uh, so when Marty's like, you know, hooked me up with you. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. You know, it's funny because uh, um, Marty and I had, we've been meeting for a while and uh, he, like I said, he's a mentor. And anyway, we were meeting for coffee one day and we were chit-chatting about a bunch of things. And towards the end of the discussion, I said, Oh, there's one more thing, man. I've been thinking about writing a book and, um, he really put me in motion, you know, um, oh, that's a great idea, mm. you know, and, and there's, you, you know, you've got so much to say. It's a great idea. So I, I really credit him with, um, putting me in motion and, and a lot of stuff that, uh, that I've got going on today. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So, um, you've written this book and I think you said you, you've got another one under contract. What is the nature of the topic of that book going to be? It will be similar in nature to Razor Zero Three. It'll be about, you know, mostly Chinooks in, uh, in the global war on terror. Huh. But I'm going to, so there's a lot of stories I didn't tell. I mean, it was 17 years, uh, 10 of that in combat, essentially. Yeah. And what I I did, these were the highlights you know, mm-hmm. that were in the news, you know, uh, Bo Bergdahl, Lone Survivor. Right. You know, Horse Soldiers, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Jimmy Hatch. Do you know Jimmy Hatch? I know him. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I, I've, so for the for the folks listening and the folks on video, I've, uh, besides my book and besides Al's book, uh, I carry, military authors that I know, I carry their books in the retail shop at I Fly Virginia Beach, so down on the first floor. And uh, Jimmy wrote a, an excellent book called Touching the Dragon. And so I've got his book uh, down there as well. And uh, actually, the cover of my book, that's me jumping out of a helicopter. Jimmy Hatch took that picture. Nice. His- I was going to say that's me. I mean, that's the <laughs> so that's the big joke in the, with me in the 160th is that uh, if I see a cool picture of a Chinook, you know, like this kind of thing here. Yeah. Uh, like, that's not me. And everybody knows it's not me because I was carrying the photographer. Yeah. <laughs> right? But I, 
you know, I know who that was. And I, if I'm around him, I'll be, hey, that's me. Yeah. Go, no, that's me. Yeah. And we argue for a little bit. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're out of trim. You know, this can't be me. That's funny. It's like that picture of uh, the Buddha drop zone, yeah. you know, that I've got over there and we'll try and edit that in. So, uh, so the, vi the video viewers can see it, but so it's a military parachutist over this big golden Buddha mountain in Thailand. And it's the same thing. People go, oh, was that you? I go, yeah, that's me. No, I was on the ground with the photographer as well going, going, you got to get that. But what I am going to do with the next book is I want to tell a couple of chapters from, you know, we talked about the enablers, the people who help make the mission happen. Yeah. So you always hear from the pilot, right? Or the shooter, uh -huh. the assaulter. But what about the crew chief? Yeah. Right. So I'm going to tell a little bit of perspective from you know a chapter or two from a crew chief's perspective, working the minigun, dealing with the pilots and the dust landings, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I want to do one of our flight medics, you know, because uh, we do a lot of Casavacs. Yeah, you know? I'm sure. And uh, you know, maybe somebody else other than that. But I, um, I did an interview with uh, General Jay Daly, who was the 160th commander way back in the beginning. And he was on uh, Operation Mount Hope 3, which is when a Chinook went into uh, Chad and stole a, a Soviet Hind helicopter. Wow. Like they, they flew in, they put slings on it, and they flew it back out, put wow. it on a C-5 and, and took it home. And that was before you could buy one in the open market. Yeah. <laughs> and they ended up taking that to the test activity at Fort Rucker, and it was always a secret when that thing flew because they were trying to figure out what it could do, uh -huh. what, you know, what its weaknesses were and all that stuff. But anyway, I interviewed him because I'm going to put that in the book as something to do with, you know, how we got, you know, yeah. where we are now. Yeah. Because you know, wow. that was really the first operation the Chinooks did. And uh, it was like 1983, I think. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, obviously Cold War era. Yeah. So, um, folks, if you're enjoying this discussion... You can tune in to the Elevate Your Leadership channel on YouTube, and you can find this discussion, and you can find several other discussions and other video clips of things uh, along the lines of leadership, mainly, uh, because after all, that's the theme of, of my podcast, but other things that I generally find interesting in this world. Uh, for example, I just bought a Ford F-150 Lightning EV, did a cross-country trip recently, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful trip. I learned a lot. So just a lot of information to share. So Elevate Your Leadership on YouTube is where you can find a lot more uh, wonderful information. So let's talk about leadership briefly. Um, you have been in leadership positions for the vast majority of your military career. Um, what's your, what's your, how do you define it? What's your definition? Hmm. That's a tough question I wasn't expecting. All right. Uh, leadership to me really is, uh, you know, getting people to do what you want them to do, hopefully with them wanting to do it. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, being in charge is one thing. I mean, that, you know, you're making somebody do what you want them to do, but that's uh -huh. not the same as leading them. You know, leading them, you know, I was talking to Patty about that, my wife, you know, how I would get guys to do things they did not want to do. Right. With the helicopter. Right. So I was the guy that when I came in, the, the assault force was happy. They're like, oh, Al's coming. Right. Uh -huh. And the pilots were waiting for me. We're like, oh, Al's coming, <laughs> you know, because they knew I was going to make them do things they did not want to do. Yeah. Like take the aircraft where it shouldn't go. Not shouldn't go, but, you know, the, the SEALs environments. Yeah, yeah. The SEALs in particular are always, you know, they knew what we could do. And they're like, well, we want to go here. And I'm like, it's uh, not a great idea, you know, because of whatever. And they're like, yeah. yeah, but we know you can do it. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. You know, you got me. So, but I would talk the guys into doing that kind of stuff. I call it the Tom Sawyer style of leadership. Okay. You know, the story of Tom Sawyer where he, uh, he's given the job to paint a fence, don't uh -huh. wash it, right? And he ends up pretending that he likes it 
and he gets all of the neighborhood kids to paint for him. They're like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm painting a fence. Can I do it? No. You know, <laughs> and so that was kind of my idea. The Tom Sawyer, the Tom Sawyer style of leadership. Yeah. Get, I love them it. To, get them to do what you want, but they think it's their idea. Yeah, 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 exactly right. And let them take all the credit, yeah. you know, and- yeah. Um, that's pretty interesting. Out of all the leadership discussions I've had on this podcast, the, nobody has mentioned the Tom Sawyer style before. So I got, I have to, I have to think that's original. That's there, yours. Well, the, the name is, but there's, so I was mentoring cadets at West Point. Uh-huh. You know, that's how I got to learn skydiving. And I was their leadership mentor for three or four of them. And there is a, that style of leadership actually has a name. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but they're like, yeah. you know, there's this. I'm like, oh, that's the, you know, the Murphy. Yeah. Right. Smith. Right. You know? Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Uh, I like the Tom Sawyer much better. So, yeah. you know, for me, leadership is not complex. You know, the Tom Sawyer, may, it, it's that's a great example because it's, I'm not saying leadership is easy. You know, it can be challenging, but there, but, but it's not complex. It's not, it's not algebra. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, and just knowing which one applies to what situation. Right. That's pretty cool. Um, so before we came on the podcast, you, you, you just mentioned that you're a skydiver mm-hmm. and that's pretty cool. Helicopter pilot, skydiver, uh, working with the cadets at West Point and you flew in the wind tunnel today. You had some tunnel time previously. Yeah. So you came here, you knew what you were doing, but how how'd your flight experience go today? Oh, I'll tell you, your, your, uh, your instructors were great. You know, they went in obviously, first of all, to make sure I wasn't bullshitting them. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, this That's, guy can fly. Yeah. You know, and then they backed off a little bit and then gave me some uh, some instruction, some really good instruction, actually, you know, because yeah. I told them I was going to start jumping again. And they're like, here, try this, try this, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You got a nice facility here, and uh, those yeah. guys are really professional. Yeah, I appreciate that. So you flew with one of our instructors, DC, yeah. David, and, uh, you know, when he's not being a, a, an absolute professional here doing a great job, he's a professional mixed martial artist fighter. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's cool. We got a heck of a crew. Al, what haven't I asked you? It's been a fascinating discussion. What haven't I asked you that you would like to share with our, with our viewers and our listeners? Yeah. I don't know. I think you pretty much got all of it. Um, just, I tell you, you know, I, I really do miss, you know, the, the guys. Yeah. You know, so, you know, get down here, uh, to Virginia Beach, I'm just looking at everybody, you know, I was like, do I know that guy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Cause I spent a lot of time so here. So funny, man. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the, I was in the gym at, at Fort Campbell one time on, on uh, elliptical, you know, yeah. heavy duty stuff. And, uh, this guy clean shaven comes up to me and he's like, Hey Al, how's it going? I'm like, do I know you? Yeah. He's like, yeah, it's Bill, you know? And I'm yeah. Like, Bill. And he goes, you know, imagine me with a beard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know? No, exactly. That happens but, all the uh, time. Um, you know, for me here, it's cool because we do a lot of military training. So I see the guys in the building all the time. And every now and then uh, I participate in, in some other training activities, you know, so I still have this this connectivity, which which for me is awesome. But I miss the guys. Man, I hear that yeah. from everybody. All of us vets, all of us dudes who have moved on, you know, that's the thing. Um, I'm real active with the local chamber of commerce here. You're real active with emergency management. Yeah. And, um, and you, you said it at the upfront in the beginning of the podcast, you know, that's still a high action, heavy responsibility. So for me, you know, it's been supplanted a little bit, you know, I, I, I definitely miss him and I miss what I did, but, uh, I, I, I love where I'm at now. I love what's going on. Well, you know, the funny thing is when I went to New York, so when I left the 160th to go up to New York, you know, I essentially cut ties with the regiment, the community, the entire, you know, special ops community. And it wasn't that I was cutting ties, like I didn't want to talk to them. 
I didn't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Right. I just wanted a different chapter in my life. Yeah. And when the, when I started writing the book, now I got to think about these things again. Yeah. And, you know, I started going to guys' retirements, you know, things like that, you know, going back to Fort Campbell. For sure. And it was great because that's when I started reconnecting with the guys. Yeah. And it's like, you know, now we're back yeah. to doing it, you know, which is, is fun. Yeah. That's great, man. That's, there's so much value in that for, for vets out there. You know, track down your teammates from the past, you know, have a beer, catch up. I do it all the time. I contact people, people contact me and, um, it's great. You know, when we're on active duty, uh, it's love, hate, right? Yeah. You you just, you, you fight with your teammates and you argue with your teammates and you hate your teammates. But, but at the end of the day, you know, we'll take a bullet for our teammate any day and, um, yeah, post-military career. I just love, man, anybody from my past, I pretty much love being around, so... They they might not love being around me, but uh, yeah, yeah you got to give bring a tear to my eye. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it's cool. All right, well, Al, thank you so much for being on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast, and um, hopefully, we'll uh, get you back down here. I had a great discussion with Patty, your wife. Oh yeah, and uh, I think awesome. she'd be she'd be great to have on the yeah. podcast as well. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.